Shalom, and welcome to Inside Israel News, your source for unbiased and thorough analysis of Israeli news, politics, and current events in the Middle East. I'm your host, Isaac Kite. Inside Israel News is back. If you haven't already followed on Facebook, please do. Uh, that way you can stay up to date. Make sure you catch every episode. Also, politicalvanguard.com. Inside Israel News has a widget there. Uh, so you can come and find all of the Inside Israel News podcasts and you can listen through your browser if you so choose. Uh, but obviously, Inside Israel News is avail- available on all of the podcast services from Apple to Spotify to Podbean to a long list of others. So Wherever you like to listen to the podcast, please listen. But uh, those are uh, critical ways to connect with Inside Israel News. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken is quoted as saying, Israel took very significant steps, quote, to prevent civilian casualties in the recent conflict in Gaza. Uh, This is part of the administration's effort to show support for Israel. Uh, Israel is generally satisfied with uh, the U.S. administration's response in terms of its support for Israel and its backing, Uh, but Israel continues to be worried about the Iran talks going on in Vienna. No progress or news of progress in that, just that the talks are ongoing uh, regarding Iran's nuclear program. And again, this administration seems very eager to go back to that uh, nuclear deal, even though Iran has blatantly violated it on many occasions. But uh, at least uh, Israel can count on the backing of the United States during the uh, during the crises like the the recent rocket attack. Other regional news, and and this one's going to surprise you. Bashar al-Assad, the dictator of Syria, has won a seven-year term as president by a 95% margin. What a surprise! Uh, these elections are such a joke. Uh, his father, Hafez al-Assad, was the um, the first Alawite dictator to take over Syria. Uh, and uh, the Alawites, like the Druze, are part of the Ismaili uh, sort of Socratic uh, bent of uh, Islam, if you will. And uh, they are uh, likewise uh, a persecuted minority uh, in a number of Muslim countries. And so part of the reason that the Assads took over was to create a, a more uh, tolerant uh, society, at least one that the, the Alawites ruled, let's just say. Well, they weren't very tolerant of the Kurds who got uh, massacred by uh, Assad's father. But uh, in any case, uh, they are uh, supposed to be part of the pan-Arab movement, but not part of the Islamist movement. And uh, whatever you think of that, that's where that is. Uh, Syria is a failed state for the past 10 years. The country has has been in a terrible civil war. Hundreds of thousands of people have been killed. The government has literally butchered uh, its citizens uh, with the help of uh, of Hezbollah and Iran. It's, it's a horrible, horrible thing. But, uh, you know, in this sort of joke election, Bashar al-Assad has been given another seven-year term as the titular president, head of a government that no longer exists in all, in all reality, uh, technically backed by Russia and Iran, but uh, that government really just doesn't exist anymore. All right, on to Israeli politics, because this, is this is where the real fun is today. 
so there's there's last, as we know, uh, Lapid, Yair Lapid was given the mandate to form a government. And he has most of May to do so. He has until June 2nd. Now, Yair Lapid was very close to forming a government before the rocket attacks began. But uh, the rocket attacks set back that process. First of all, Ra'am, the uh, United Arab List Party, led by Mansour Abbas, uh, pulled out of negotiations during the conflict. And uh, Yamina, Yamina Naftali Bennett's party, of course, with all the pressure coming from the right, uh, they backed out of negotiations as well. Well, now that the rocket attacks are over, uh, they're going back to negotiating with Lapid. Uh, so this is where things are. Uh, there's some last-minute jockeying by Lapid to try to form a government, and it's uh, looking like he may be, may be able to do that. Well, we'll see. But uh, Netanyahu himself is also jockeying to form a government. For those uh, of you who are new to the podcast or haven't been following since the beginning, uh, this election has been the fourth of uh, four elections in the last two years uh, between those who are pro-BB and those who are anti-BB trying to form a government. And uh, if, <clears throat> if Lapid is not able to form a government by June 2nd, the president could task someone else with forming a government, President Ruby Rivlin, but the uh, greatest likelihood is that Knesset will go ahead and, and go to new elections at this point. But we'll see. If that's the case, that's a fifth election that would happen later this year, and it would be something of a mess. So uh, <clears throat> where did those negotiations stand at this point? Uh, Yair Lapid, leader of the Yeshatid party, and generally seen as the leader of the change bloc, the anti-BB group who are trying to form a coalition, uh, he has just signed a deal with Labor, uh, led by Mirav Mikhaili, who's brought Labor back from the dead. Uh, Labor was was pulling below the threshold before she became Labor's leader, and she was able to revive the party. Uh, it, it was almost replaced by um, the uh, uh, former mayor of uh, Tel Aviv, Ron Hodai. So this is the situation that uh, that they're in. They finally get that. So now Lapid has labor in. He also has Meretz and Yisrael Batenu. So he has a total of uh, 37 seats at this point. He needs 61. Um, he would have 45 with blue and white. And if he adds New Hope, which is, uh, so blue and white is Benny Gantz party. Now, Benny Gantz was the, the past competitor to Bibi Netanyahu, uh, but he fell out of favor after forming a unity government with Bibi during the virus crisis last year. Uh, and New Hope is led by Gidon Sa'ar, another person who aspired to replace Bibi Netanyahu. So uh, he's a right-wing party. Uh, Benny Gantz is generally considered centrist. He's a former general. Um, what most Israelis think of him as center-left. Uh, but, you know, he's pretty centrist. Uh, of course, the fulcrum, the, the center of Israeli politics, has moved considerably to the right. But that's a, a topic for another time. Uh, if Yamina join the coalition, only six of the seven party members would vote for it. And that gives the coalition 57 seats. That puts them just four seats shy of a majority. Well, uh, there are only 10 more seats that are not either in BB's block or in, uh, at that point, what would be the change block. And uh, those are made up by the Arab parties. So you have uh, a number of those uh, parties including the joint list, which has six seats, uh, and you have also Ra'am, which has four seats. So Ra'am could make up the difference 
and uh, create a coalition government. But then the question comes, uh, there's still riots in uh, mixed Jewish and Arab cities that uh, incite violence. Uh, what will happen there? Will the government uh, with Mansour Abbas in it be strong enough to uh, quell those riots? Uh, will they be able to make a strong response to uh, future aggression by Hamas or other groups? So that's going to be uh, that's going to be an interesting question right there. We'll we'll have to see how that plays out. Uh, in any case, Lapid is getting closer to forming a government. Now, I've talked about uh, this before that if this government comes together, we're going to go from basically the star cabinet to the all star cabinet. So the the current cabinet. The, the prime minister and the ministers of the various cabinet positions uh, is led by Bibi Netanyahu. So he's the star of the show and everyone else kind of uh, there to, to support him. Right. But in this coalition, if this comes together, you have all these disparate parties from the far right, from the far left, that would be forming a, a unity government, if you will, to get rid of Bibi Netanyahu. Uh, but they'd have a lot of talent, not any one person who stands out as a star, uh, but they would have a, a lot of stars. So I call it the all-star cabinet because we go from a cabinet basically that's Bibi Netanyahu and his supporting cast to a bunch of big characters uh, who are the main event at all uh, stages. Uh, they're talking about um, uh, Bennett going first in the rotation so that uh, Bennett would have uh, the first two years and then Yair Lapid the second go. So uh, that's according to Channel 12, which came out today saying that uh, Bennett and Lapid have reached a deal. Now, um, they met today and it's possible that they have reached a deal. Uh, but Bennett was speaking with Bibi just yesterday and Netanyahu came out today saying that he offered uh, Bennett a rotation where uh, Bennett would be prime minister for the last year and a half of the four year term, that he would be defense minister and acting PM. Uh, so that he would take over when the prime minister leaves the country and be the successor to the prime minister until getting the office himself. Uh, but Bibi said, uh, but Bennett has run back to the left. And uh, of course, Bennett went and met with Lapid. And now Channel 12 is saying that they've reached an agreement. Um, Arya Derry, who is leader of the Shas party, they're the Sephardic ultra-Orthodox party, and while they've been kingmakers for a long time, they're, they're a very unpopular party in Israel. Uh, a lot of Israelis don't want the ultra-Orthodox in the coalition because they push for uh, special privileges for them. They're, they're exempt from military service. Uh, the men study at yeshiva all day and then don't work. Their wives are uh, working often several jobs, raising the kids, and uh, they consume considerable welfare benefits, welfare benefits that increase with the number of children that they have uh, so that the fifth, sixth, seventh and eighth child, you get significantly more benefits. Well, most average Israelis have families have three to four children. The ultra orthodox have eight to ten per family. So, of course, they get more benefits. Well, why shouldn't that all be equalized? Why shouldn't those benefits be available to everyone? And uh, the ultra orthodox men should work and support their families. But, uh, you know, at the very least, the, the government should not pay them not to. Uh, but that is an issue that the change block might address, but it's not going to be addressed as long as the ultra-Orthodox are in the coalition. In any case, Arya Derry uh, of Shas has suggested that if Yamina were to join the government, he believes that all of the six members of the New Hope Party, led by Gidon Sa'ar, who are... Uh, 
purportedly opposed to Bibi and, and ran against Bibi, he suggests that Bibi, they would all join a, a right-wing government if Yamina joined the, the right. And is it possible, you know, anything is possible in, in Israeli politics when it comes to the, the um, predicting the future? The only thing you can say is expect the unexpected, right? But it is, um, you know, anything could happen, but it's unlikely. It's really unlikely that at this point, uh, that if Yamina joined the government, New Hope would join the government and Bibi would have another four years. It just it doesn't look like that's going to happen. Um, and we'll we'll see what ultimately results here. But it's looking like Lapid has a, a deal with Bennett, according to Channel 12. And there's still four seats short. So it's possible that Ra'am may uh, rejoin the government. We will see. OK, Um Ailet Shaked, who is the number two in Yamina, uh, former justice minister. I've mentioned her a number of times in previous podcasts. She's an important uh, political figure in on the Israeli right, and she has been a champion of judicial reforms, which I'm going to speak of, which I'm going to speak in just a moment. Uh, she says that there's no chance to form a right wing government; that basically it's just not going to happen, and that as a result, uh, she is willing to sacrifice her own political career in the future for the good of the state. And that they will go join this left-wing government and at least Israel will have a government and avoid a fifth election. So that's her justification for what they're trying to do, even though it is basically political suicide. It's doubtful that the voting bloc for Yamina would vote for them again, because at this point, only one in four uh, of their voters, of their constituents, believe that they should join this government or are okay with them joining this government. Three quarters of their voters don't want them to join. So it's... um, yeah, I guess it is what it is, huh? Okay, uh, the Change Coalition deal uh, includes a veto for right-wing parties on certain policies uh, that they might that the coalition might advance, uh, and does allow them to press forward with judicial reforms. Uh, this is something that Eilat Shaked has wanted to do for a while. They want to change the way that uh, judges are appointed, such that more right-wing judges can be appointed. Uh, the current judicial system uh, of appointment is kind of done uh, in-house by a, a judicial council, and it, it leads to a lot of left-wing judges, let's just say. And uh, the right has been complaining for a long time that the judiciary has basically become a uh, an auxiliary of the left, right? Uh, well, as a result, Benny Gantz, who would also be necessary to this coalition, is saying that he wants a veto over judicial reforms. So it's possible that uh, Naftali Bennett has put the judicial reform veto uh, idea in or put the judicial reform idea forward as a poison pill to try to sabotage coalition talks. But then he could say that he's, you know, he tried with both sides. Right. Who knows? (laughs) We'll see. But it is interesting that uh, even though this government is going to be mixed right and left with uh, a number of centrist parties and center left parties, uh, right wing judicial reforms are on the table and there is some opposition to that. Uh, Will Yair Lapid be able to form a government? We should know within the next few days. Uh, And if we uh, if we don't, uh, if they don't form it, then uh, we'll know what they're going to do afterwards. Probably new elections. Is it possible BB could cobble something together at the last minute? Who knows? But uh, unless Lapid forms a government, it looks a lot like a fifth election. 
As I noted in the last podcast episode, I want to help others to be able to defend Israel in the conversations with friends, neighbors, and co-workers, you know, people that you meet in your daily life, uh, where we're constantly bombarded with uh, information, you know, people emailing us stuff, messaging us stuff, and what have you. So in the last episode, I went over some of the crazier conspiracy theories uh, from the uh, uh, basically neo-Nazi protocols uh, of the elders of Zion, Whew. and uh, the the whole uh, you know Jews are st- stealing the land and uh, Israel's committing genocide and uh, the arguments that boil down to it's okay to murder Jews because you know, it's okay to kill Jews because Israel's stolen land it's okay to kill Jews because uh, they're trying to kill the Arabs it's okay to kill Jews because right it's not okay to kill Jews that is anti-Semitism period end of story right uh, Israel has a right to defend itself. And they do very well. A couple of other things I wanted to note. Uh, Obviously, I kind of ran short on time, and I wanted to cover those points as well as I could uh, in that uh, podcast episode. And it ended up running considerably longer than I intended anyway. So I'm going to continue it here. A few more arguments and points to make. Uh, Back to the the Jews stole the land thing. Uh, Jews have always lived in the land. Right. There's, there's this idea that somehow Jews left and, and, you know, came back. Yes, a large number of Jews went to other places and did come back, but there have always been Jews living in the land. Tiberias, which is a community up near the Galilee, is a Jewish community that has been continuously occupied by Jews for millennia, basically since the Jews moved into the area 35 centuries ago. Uh, Jerusalem has been the capital of Israel for over 3,000 years, Right. Now, it is true, in, in 70 of the Christian era, the, uh, the Romans, uh, you know, what was 823 on the, <laughs> the Roman calendar, but uh, we, you know, later on, we changed the, the Western calendar to the, the Christian calendar. In any case, uh, in 70, uh, the Romans destroyed the temple, destroyed Jerusalem, and kicked Jews out of Jerusalem, uh, but Jews still lived in the area. And uh, Jews continued to live in, in the area uh, during the Crusades, uh, when the Crusaders arrived, there was significant Jewish community in Jerusalem at the time. Uh, and uh, when uh, the uh, modern Zionist movement, I want to say, uh, Teder Herzl and, and this crowd started to promote the idea of moving back to Israel, there were already Jews living in the land. And I can tell you personally, uh, I have spoken with uh, Jewish families who lived in the area long before uh, modern Zionism. Uh, there was one family I met. Uh, they are of uh, Ramle. They, they live in Ramle. And they have been there for at least 800 years. Basically, it's been the capital of the Ottoman Empire's uh, province in the area. It was Ramle was the Ottoman capital of the region. And they've, they've been living there and trading there for centuries. Right? They, when, you know, when the Ottomans were uh, defeated by the British, they became subjects of the, the, of the crown, basically, and part of the British mandate of Palestine. And then when Israel declared independence, they were part of Israel. So this, is, uh, this, this notion that somehow Jews are you know, coming back and stealing the land or what have you, um, on top of the fact that it's our land. The Bible says it's our land. The Quran says it's our land. Everything everywhere says it's our land. What, what's, the, what's the deal here? Right. We have people over here in America who shout and scream and cry that we stole the land from the Native Americans, and yet they don't recognize Israel's claim to the land. 
Anyway, as I, I talked about last time, I mean, you know, the, the history is, is fairly complicated, but once you explain to people any of the history, uh, as I, I went over in detail in the last podcast, so I won't uh, bore you with it again, you, you look at any of the history and you can see that the anti-Israel arguments just melt. They, they're just destroyed by any kind of rational thinking, which is why people start screaming and shouting at you the minute you start uh, debating with them because they have no choice but to become emotional. There really isn't any rational argument for their position. A uh, couple other things. Uh, Israel has made peace with everyone and anyone who's been willing to talk to them. Uh, Israel made peace uh, with Egypt in 1979. Very difficult peace negotiation between Menachem Begin and Anwar Sadat. Uh, this negotiation almost fell apart right at the end. They came back together and they made it happen. And Israel withdrew from the Sinai Peninsula, which it had uh, conquered in the uh, 1967 Six-Day War. Uh, and uh, they and Egypt have had a peaceful border ever since. In 1996, Jordan sat down at the negotiating table, and not only have Israel and Jordan made peace, but they now share water resources and uh, help to address Jordan's water issues uh, uh, regarding the Jordan Valley area and the Dead Sea and what have you. So that, that worked out. Uh, recently, the United Arab Emirates and Bahrain made peace with Israel. Uh, so did uh, you know, we've seen normalization with Kosovo, with, you know, just look out there. Look out there. Morocco, Sudan. I mean, anyone who will make peace and normalize relations with Israel, Israel will do so and, and bend over backwards. Uh, again, the, the withdrawal from the Sinai was a huge strategic. I mean, the Sinai Peninsula was a huge strategic asset for Israel. That was a huge thing for them to give up. And they gave it up for peace. All right. Um, I wanted to make this point. I, I shouldn't have to say this because it, it kind of speaks for itself, but anti-Semitism is bigotry. And you get all these people that make all kinds of excuses for why they're not anti-Semites. Oh, I'm only anti-Zionist. Right. But you're making the argument it's OK to kill Jews because, you know, whatever BS excuse you have, that is anti-Semitism. Like, you know, Jewish lives have less value to you. Jews do not have the right to defend themselves. You know, you want to, uh, you want Jews to die. That that is anti-Semitism. Sorry, uh, but it is bigotry. It is prejudice, and it is a problem all around the world. Uh, with from the international press to government officials, uh, to people on the street, there is just a strange phenomenon of bigotry against Israel. And I've heard uh, some uh, of my Christian friends ascribe that to a a greater universal evil that uh, acts against the Jewish people. And, uh, you know, you can see that it is obviously bigger than than uh, uh, just a group of people who don't like Israel. I mean, you know, the Arabs have got themselves all fired up about they don't like Israel. But now, you know, we've got all these people around the world uh, who are just railing on Israel and picking on Israel. And it's gotten ridiculous. In any case, anti-Semitism is bigotry. It really is. It is, an, it is honest to God, a, a terrible form of prejudice against a group of people, and we should not tolerate it, right? It is okay to criticize the government of Israel and its policies. It is okay to say that you don't like the situation, right? I mean, nobody does. Obviously, the Israelis don't like the situation. They've had rockets falling on their streets. Uh, but, you know, if you want peace, um, I can point you to some more productive ways to try to achieve it. Uh, the main impediment to peace is not even in the immediate region. It's in Tehran. It's in the capital of Iran. If the Iranians would stop interfering in the region, there would be a greater likelihood of peace. 
But terrorist organizations like the Fatah organization that's behind the uh, Palestinian Authority, the former PLO, uh, they are, you know, they're genocidal terrorists. They want to murder Israelis, right? They've kind of calmed down a little bit in recent years, but that doesn't change who they are. Hamas, genocidal organization. It is in the Hamas charter that they want to kill every man, woman, and child in Israel, regardless of who, what, when, where, and why, right? They, Muslims, Christians, men, children, women, everybody. They want to kill everybody, right? And when they fire rockets indiscriminately at Israeli cities, what are they trying to do? They are trying to kill everyone. So when somebody says they want to do something and then they try to do it, doesn't that mean that that's what they want? Right. So obviously organizations like Fatah and uh, Hamas need to be defeated. The, the people of that region uh, the, of the Palestinian territories need to liberate themselves from these terrorist organizations. And there's been some effort at that in uh, Gaza. There was organizations that were trying to mimic the Tahrir Square um, protests that the Egyptians launched against the Mohamed Morsi uh, Muslim Brotherhood government that had prevailed there. And those protests were very successful. And uh, when they tried that in the Gaza Strip, Hamas just flipped. They started driving uh, tanks and armored vehicles around on the streets and arresting people and shooting people. Uh, they, they want absolute control over the region. So if you really want peace, help the Arab people on the street gain their freedom from these terrorist organizations. Don't uh, don't oppose Israel. Israel isn't the, the problem there. Uh, if Hamas and Fatah were gone, if the Palestinian people were uh, led by more responsible people, if they wanted peace as a group of people and wanted prosperity and economic, they would have it. Okay. Uh, but uh, as long as those terrorist organizations are there, are empowered, are armed, and tyrannize their populations, there's going to be war. You just you you that is their goal. They want to destroy Israel, and until they are defeated, you know you you can't sit there and, and negotiate. You know, well we'll we'll drive Hitler back into Germany, and then we'll figure out what we're going to do from there. Now that he's contained, you know, no, yeah, well we can negotiate with him, whatever. No, the Nazi regime had to be destroyed. Tanks had to drive into Berlin. Okay, we had to occupy the entire country. There is no negotiating with them until they are utterly and completely defeated. You know, now uh, Hamas took a pounding. They've, they've been winning the propaganda war, I'm, I'm sorry to say, but they took a pounding. Uh, they lost a lot of their troops and resources in the Gaza Metro operation, the destruction of the terror tunnels underneath the, the Gaza Strip. Uh, and uh, Israel tricked them into sending their, their men down into those tunnels and were able to destroy a significant amount of their uh, paramilitary assets, let's just say. So Hamas is hurting, but they've won a massive propaganda victory, even though they accomplished nothing but the murder of uh, 10 Israeli civilians uh, in their rocket attacks. All right. So what, what about racism? <laughs> And, and I know uh, the title looks a little bit like of this podcast looks a little bit like clickbait and, and that kind of thing. We see this word thrown around a lot today. So I just have to give it a definition before we go there again. We get people who, you know, everybody's a racist. If, if your skin is a certain color, then you're automatically a racist and all this kind of thing. No, racism is the belief that a particular racial group of people is inferior to another racial group of people. And how do we express that inferiority, right? If you believe that one group of people is inferior to you, how would you express that? 
uh, you would uh, you would think that they behave differently than you. They they don't behave on the same level, right? They're they're lesser than you. They're not as smart as you are. They're not as civilized as you are. They're not as erudite. Uh, they're not capable of the kinds of thinking, right? So you 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 the master race theoretically are better than this group of people, right? Uh, and they would, uh, you know, behave in ways that you would consider embarrassing and belittling and, and primitive. And uh, how did how did the the Brits say back in the British Empire? You know, they're, they're just down out of the trees. I mean, that kind of thing, that kind of thinking. Uh, you, you I, I apologize, but it literally makes me sick to my stomach even to speak of it. Because it is uh, really horrible stuff. But unfortunately, a lot of people have faced terrible abuse over the years from Racism. Now, Jews know all about bigotry. We are the victims of anti-Semitism on a vast scale. So uh, it is it is sickening when you yourself are the victim and then you turn around and it's like, oh, my God, look, look at this racism. It's a terrible thing. OK, racism is bad. But what when when people are making the anti-Israel argument, the thing one of the things that really, really irks me about it is that they hold the Arabs to a lower standard. Right. Uh, we, we have, uh, as, as Thomas Sowell said, there's there's the soft bigotry of low expectations. Right. If you think a group of people are inferior to you and you just don't expect a lot from them that, you know, you don't you don't call upon them to aspire. You don't hold them to the same standards that that is bigotry. Right. Uh, so here we have, you know, everyone talking about how Israel is this white country. Well, excuse me. You know, half the people in Israel are from the Middle East and descended from the Middle East. Uh, and uh, there's a large Ethiopian community that lives there. Uh, a lot of Eastern Europeans have moved to Israel, Eastern European Jews. So first of all, we're, we're a member of a religious minority, most of us. Uh, and Eastern Europeans are not privileged Western white people. OK, we're not talking about French, British. These are people who suffered terribly under the Soviet Union and in the Soviet bloc. And when they were finally freed from that, uh, they, they went to Israel, a country where they were allowed to study Hebrew, where they were allowed to read the Torah. Right. Anyway, uh, so these these people are far from the, quote unquote, privileged Western white people uh, who make up the population of Israel. Nevertheless, the modern woke left says that uh, Israel is a white country and a colonial power and all these kinds of things. Uh, again, that all fits into the narrative of it's okay to murder Jews because, because we're all these bad things, right? Uh, and that, uh, that just creates the, the conspiracy. In any case, so they, they co-opt Israel into whiteness. And I'm making this point because Israel is not a white country. We're not talking about uh, white Anglo-Saxon Protestants here that have been the villain of uh, so much uh, rhetoric from the left for a long time. Actually, wasps are great people. Um, and if we stop judging them by who they are, just as we say they should not be judged, uh, you know, as other people should not be judged by what they look like or what have you, then we would have a fair standard, wouldn't we? In any case, uh, Israel is... Uh, a mixed country with a lot of different ethnic groups. And uh, again, you know, it, it's not really white, but they co-opted it in a way. So, okay, so we're white, right? Um, now, as a European descended Jew, of course, you know, they're going to say, I'm white and that I have all kinds of privileges. Well, you know, uh, if you knew my family history and the traumas and, and severe PTSD I've had to deal with, I would like to find the privilege anywhere in my upbringing uh, and in my life. But we won't go into all of that right here. In any case, so uh, these people, uh, 
Israel is bad, it's okay to murder Jews because, would never tolerate the deliberate targeting of civilians by Germany, right, or Britain. Okay, so if, if uh, let's say, NATO in uh, Afghanistan uh, just said, you know, to heck with it, the, the Helmand province is too much trouble. The, the pe- we're just, we're just going to wipe out the whole population. We're just going to carpet bomb, uh, steel rain, going to come down, and bam, those, those villages are all gone. We're just going to wipe everybody out. No one would tolerate that, okay? Uh, if, if the Second World War, it was a horrible thing that, that civilians were targeted as uh, part of the bombings, first by the Germans in, in Rotterdam, even after the Dutch had already surrendered in London afterwards, and then it was found... Uh, in the years that followed that destroying enemy cities was an important part, unfortunately, of destroying their ability to make war. And thus Germany and Japan especially suffered terrible destruction of their cities. And I don't even want to go into what the Germans did to the cities in uh, Russia and uh, Eastern Europe. I mean, the, the horrors are, are many, many, many fold worse than anything people uh, dealt with in the West. And the less said of the Japanese occupation of China, the better. In any case, the fact is uh, the uh, the deliberate targeting of civilians was in, during the height of the worst war in history, uh, a really unfortunate reality for the allied powers. But today, now that we are the powers in the world, now that there are no you know Nazis or, or Japanese empire to attack, uh, we lament that. And we sit here and we ponder, you know, was it right to drop the atomic bombs on Japan? Was it right to bomb these civilian targets? And when you talk to the veterans and the people who lived in that era, who unfortunately are disappearing from us very quickly, but when you speak to them, uh, they say, you know, at the time we didn't have a choice, right? In any case, we don't tolerate that kind of behavior of our own kind. We expect NATO, the U.S. military, everybody stick to military targets and that kind of thing. But it's okay for Arabs to behave in a very uncivilized manner and deliberately target civilians, right? It, it, it's okay for Arabs to uh, invade people's homes in the middle of the night and slit the throats of children and, uh, and, and their parents, right? That, that kind of behavior is okay. It's okay to murder Jews because, right? Means that it's okay for Arabs to behave this way. Well, if you think that Arabs are the kind of people who just want to go around murdering children and, and men and women alike indiscriminately and firing rockets at, at civilians and hospitals and schools and homes, and that's okay with you, are you not setting a lower standard for that racial group? Are you not saying that Arabs are, are beneath you? That they are less than white people? They're, they're not as evolved, you see? They're, they're not as... as, as civilized, you, you have to understand. They're just down out of the trees, aren't they? Right? The, these Arabs, these, these primitive people who are not smart enough, they're not as good as we are. So, you know, they're violent and, and they're, they're uh, impulsive and, you know, they're just not as, as, as enlightened, let's just say, as we are. They're not as smart as we are. So, of course, it's okay for them to behave like barbarians in ways that we would never tolerate from white people, from Western powers, right? It's okay for them to behave this way. Now, if that doesn't sound disgusting and abhorrent to you, I don't know what is. I don't think anything, I don't think you can be helped, okay? 
I have said here before in this podcast that I don't have an anti-Arab bias. I have nothing against Arab people in particular, and I hold them to the same standards that I hold everyone else. Uh, if the Arabs restricted themselves to military targets, if they made uh, peaceful protests, right? I mean, here, here we talk about the, 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 same, the same standard, right? When Mohandas Gandhi started the passive resistance movement in India to set India free from British control, he didn't advocate violence. They didn't kill anyone. And they went out and protested and resisted. And in ways that did not involve violence, they made it inconvenient for the colonial power to try to rule India. Right. Why wouldn't that work here? If the Israelis are as bad as they say we are, right, if, if we Jews are... Again, you know, we're short, sniveling trolls, devious, and with little horns in our head, and we drink the blood of Christian babies, right? If we're, if we're this devious, sniveling, conniving people, the long noses, that, uh, you know, the caricature I shared with the, the last uh, podcast, if you looked at it on the website. Uh, if we're that, then why wouldn't passive resistance work, right? If we're really out there to commit genocide, if we're really out there to steal land then why wouldn't passive resistance work? Why wouldn't it just, you know, Arabs going in peace with no weapons whatsoever and marching and protesting and, and saying without hurting anyone, no rioting, right? And saying, we want a state of our own. We want to live in peace. We're tired of being occupied by this. Why wouldn't that work, right? And the reason it wouldn't work is that that's not their goal. They don't want a Palestinian state. They don't want peace. Hamas and Fatah, the dictator, dictatorial, tyrannical terrorist organizations are built on murder. That is how they maintain power. They are built on murder. Okay, you might as well ask Kim Jong-un to, to sing Kumbaya and, you know, say, hey, why don't you let your people have free elections and, and vote and speak their mind? That's not the way that regime works. That is a, a tyranny, a communist dictatorship. He makes everybody worship him like he's a god. Okay? The same thing is true with Hamas and Fatah. These are terrorist organizations built on violence. And if you think that is okay, that it's okay for Arabs to be oppressed that way, that it is okay for them to behave in uncivilized manner to achieve their goals, that they should not pursue the civilized approach of white Westerners and uh, or Mohandas Gandhi and passive resistance and making protests and what have you, I'm sorry, you're a racist. That's, that's patently, tacitly racist to believe that Arabs are lesser people who are not as evolved as we are. They're just down out of the trees. And so, of course, they're going to have to kill people in order to achieve their ends. Right. If the Arabs gave up their weapons tomorrow, there'd be peace. As Golda Meir said, if Israel gave up its weapons, there would be no more Israel. And that's not, you know, people being put on boats. You know what I mean? We're talking about massacre. There would be unholy slaughter. Uh, so this is this is a really important point I have to make here. If we're not racists, then we have to hold everyone to the same standard. If we're going to say, and they, they accuse Israel, so that's, that's part of the moralizing, the, the moral relativism. Oh, Israel attacks me. Civilians are unintentionally killed at times or injured when Israel attacks the, the military, if you will, the paramilitary targets. But that's the point. Hamas hides their weapons under hospitals. They hide their leaders in apartment buildings with other civilians. They, they had an office in the same building with the press. Of course, they want to have the associate press right down the hall and, and these other uh, organizations, Reuters and, and everybody, you know, because that protects them 
from attack. Well, Israel wouldn't bomb a building with reporters in it. You see, they're hiding. That's the kind of devious and, and spiteful behavior we get from these people. Uh, they want those civilian casualties because it, it feeds their propaganda machine. Okay? It makes them look like uh, they're not so bad. All right, But if we're going to hold them to the same standards and, and say that uh, they have to behave on the same level that we are, uh, then there is no, no argument, no basis for supporting Hamas or Fatah. Right? Then you have to stand in a position like I do and say, I want the Arab people of those territories to be liberated from the control of Hamas and Fatah. Whatever solution there is, if there's going to be a Palestinian state or if other Arab countries are going to uh, ultimately sort of, uh, there's been talk of, you know, federating certain Palestinian territories to um, Jordan or to Egypt or what have you, uh, uh, so that they would be governed uh, semi-autonomously, but ostensibly as part of other Arab countries. Whatever solution you want, all right? If any of that's going to work, these people have to be free to speak their minds. They have to be free to pursue their economic opportunities. They have to be able to have a free press. They have to have the freedom of religion. All right, you remember when I told you that originally there were about a quarter million Arabs living in the region before Israel moved in? Uh, about one in five of those Arabs was Christian. All right, the, the Christian population of the Palestinian territories is less than 2% now. All right, and a lot of them didn't leave. Freedom of religion doesn't exist there. Freedom of speech doesn't exist there. Until those people have freedom from these terrorist organizations, there cannot be peace. There cannot be a, a state. They cannot be federated uh, cantons to Arab states. There can't be anything other than war. Uh, and so, again, it's racist to argue that somehow that's okay. It's okay for Arabs to live in tyranny. It's okay for them to behave in an uncivilized manner because they're just down out of the trees, right? That's racism. So we need to uh, apply the same standards across the board. If I expect that Israel restrict its targets to military targets, uh, if I prefer that people engage in peaceful protest, which is my right here in the West, if I don't like the way the government is running the country, I can go out and shout and uh, wave signs and, and speak my mind and I can write articles and speak in, in the case like uh, this podcast. If I were doing this in the Gaza Strip, I'd be risking my life. Even even to, to go uh, just a few degrees away from the Hamas propaganda would risk my life, let alone saying the things that I say here. Let's hold everyone to the same standard because we are not racists. And I'm not willing to say that Arabs are lesser people. I've met a lot of uh, Arabs. They are capable of being wonderful people. There was a time during the Arab Enlightenment in the Middle Ages when the Arabs were uh, among you know, Persians and, and Jewish scholars like Maimonides and, and others. There was Al-Batani. Uh, there were so many great scholars who were Arabs. The Arabs are capable of everything that everyone else is capable of. Okay, they are capable of being civilized people. They are capable of being intelligent. They are capable of uh, engaging in the kind of enlightened passive resistance that we have here in the West. And so we should not lower them in our minds or create for them a, a dual standard because they're lesser people or less evolved and say that it's okay for them to behave this way. It is an honor and a pleasure to bring you these episodes. Thank you so much for your listening and passing this around to your friends and making sure that they stay well informed as well. Uh, it is, uh, you know, I, I am just, I'm so grateful. It's such an honor. <laughs> it is a great thing. Uh, and please visit on, on Political Vanguard and find the Facebook page as always. So I will say, Lahitrot, goodbye. <laughs> Ein Flieger, was die Nord mehr auf der Latte
המשחטות הישנות יגעינו תפוחי זהב. כל זה אינו משל ולא חלום, זה נכון, כעול בצהריים. כל זה יבוא מחר אם לא היום. 